Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Let's get started today with a case. You've got a 40-year-old man presenting to your office with fever, chills, headache, and muscle aches. He tells you that three days ago, he got back from an absolutely epic trip to Peru. He flew into Cusco and went to Machu Picchu. After that, they had about five more days, and he decided to take a trip to Manu, a bioreserve rainforest jungle. He traveled through there and saw all kinds of birds and monkeys and other animals. He says it was amazing. He got done with his time in the jungle about three days ago and flew back to the United States yesterday. You wonder, could this be flu? It's wintertime. You test him, but he's negative. You figure, this is probably just some other viral illness, and you send him home and tell him to take Tylenol and ibuprofen. Two days later, that patient returns, this time markedly ill. His skin is yellow. He says he's had blood in his stool for the last 12 hours, and you notice bleeding in his gums. He's bradycardic and hypotensive. And you call the ambulance. You say, you are too sick. I'm going to get some fluid started on you, and I'm going to call the ambulance, and we're going to send you to the hospital. At the hospital, he started on broad-spectrum antibiotics. Given fluid admitted to the ICU. He's noted to have a low lymphocyte count and a low platelet count. On top of that, his aminotransferases are markedly elevated, as is his INR. The patient continues to have worsening bleeding in his gut, and in spite of everything, continues to deteriorate. Eventually, the overwhelming shock becomes too much, and the patient dies. What I just described to you was a very severe and eventually fatal case of yellow fever virus. Yellow fever is a viral tropical disease. It's most prevalent in Africa, where over 90% of cases occur. But about 400 years ago, It traveled to South America with people colonizing the New World and now can be found in equatorial regions on both continents. The disease is spread by mosquitoes and as such is an arbovirus or an arthropod-borne virus. 
And arthropods, of course, are insects, spiders, centipedes, and crustaceans. These are organisms that are invertebrates with an exoskeleton, segmented body, and jointed appendages. The medically relevant arthropods that tend to spread arboviruses are mosquitoes, ticks, sandflies, and biting midgets. About 500 different arboviruses are recognized worldwide, and there's probably many, many, many more. Arbovirus infections are oftentimes zoonoses, meaning they're infections that jump from animals to humans, but sometimes they are specific to humans. For instance, dengue is the most relevant human arbovirus infection, with an estimated 300 million infections every year globally. Arboviruses can cause a number of symptoms. Fever, including hemorrhagic fever, can be very common, and that, that's something we see in things like yellow fever and dengue fever. Encephalitis is also very common. You can think about that with things like West Viral or West Nile virus and St. Louis encephalitis. And then polyarthralgia is another manifestation that's common to many arboviruses. And what I think about that with that is chikungunya virus. Because of climate change, environmental changes, and then constant mutations which are occurring in the virus, vectors, and humans make arboviruses a very dynamic and changing group of organisms. We're constantly seeing them wax and wane in prevalence, and we're seeing their geographic regions change over time. They're a fascinating group of diseases. Alright, let's talk a little bit about epidemiology. The World Health Organization estimates that every year there's about 200,000 cases of yellow fever virus with about 30,000 deaths. But every source you read admits that this is probably underreported and the true incidence really cannot be known because of reporting issues and the fact that many cases are asymptomatic or only mildly symptomatic. As we said, yellow fever is spread by mosquitoes, but interestingly it's also been found in some species of tick in Brazil. But that's not really clinically significant, at least yet, with the ticks. But the main mosquito to think about is Aedes, Aedes aegypti. This is a very important mosquito medically because it not only transmits yellow fever, but also Zika, Dengue, and Chikungunya. Aedes aegypti mosquitoes typically live in urban areas, and they feed on humans usually during the day actually and we call cycles of infection where mosquitoes are feeding on humans getting infected with yellow fever having that yellow fever go into the mosquito's gut reproduce enter into its organ system go into its salivary glands and then make it so the next time it bites a human it injects those yellow fever virus particles into the human the urban cycle. It's going from mosquito to human around and round in cycles and these are usually how epidemics of yellow fever occur. 
And again, Aedes aegypti is the most common mosquito in that urban cycle. Currently, the urban cycle is only occurring in equatorial Africa, and it no longer occurs in South America. In both South America and Africa, another mode of transition called the sylvatic cycle, which is really, you can think about it with associated with forest and jungle type of transmission, where most of the infection of mosquitoes is coming from monkeys. And the mosquitoes are biting the monkeys, they're getting yellow fever like we talked about before, and biting other monkeys, and that's most of the cycle. But when humans enter the jungle, they're occasionally getting bit and getting yellow fever. It's not happening in big outbreaks, but it's occurring to people who are close or inside those jungle areas. And typically, that's different species of mosquito. Oftentimes in Africa, Aedes africanus, and then in South America, a different genus of mosquito called Hemagogogus. Sorry, I always butcher <laughs> butcher these scientific uh, Latin names. And then there's also a third cycle, which is thought to be a mix between the urban cycle and the sylvatic cycle where you're getting kind of a combination of both. It's coming from mosquito-monkey circulation and primates, of course, too, and then it's also circulating to humans as well within that cycle. So kind of all three of those different parties are involved, and that's generally happening in places where humans are, are colonizing wild areas or moving into new areas that were formerly wild and now are becoming cities and towns. And so we see that a lot in Africa. Wakanda! Alright, let's revisit the symptoms and disease course and manifestations. Typically, after a person gets bit by a mosquito that's carrying yellow fever virus, they're going to start to develop infection in three to six days. There's a three to six day incubation period. Now, most cases are going to be either asymptomatic, so the person will have no symptoms, or mildly symptomatic, with something like mild fevers, headaches, some chills, and muscle aches for a couple days. Now, some people develop more moderate to severe infections, where they have fever, headache, chills that are more severe, along with some nausea and vomiting, belly pain, and back pain. Some of these folks will even develop some mild jaundice, and even some like bleeding of the gums and stuff. Now, most of those people are going to resolve their infection. In fact, most will be feeling a lot better within three to five days. However, a smaller percentage of people, thought to be around 15% or so, will get better after that initial phase of illness for about one day. And then after that, their fever and chills and everything else will come back aggressively. They'll become severely jaundiced. They'll develop a hemorrhagic fever where they're bleeding from their GI tract. They can get bradycardic, hypotensive. They can develop kidney failure, other organ failure, and die. In South America, they call yellow fever vomito negro because blood often becomes dark black in the gut and so people that have this illness will be vomiting up black disgusting tarry liquid 
that actually is blood, although it's black. People who progress to the second more severe stage of illness have a very high chance of dying. Oftentimes it's thought to be around a 50% chance case fatality rate. This gives yellow fever about a 5% overall mortality risk, which makes it a fairly deadly infection. Now, during epidemics, sometimes these fatality rates can be even higher. On laboratories, you're going to notice some of the things, or sorry, let's start with vital signs. Classically, people are actually bradycardic, which is unusual for someone who's febrile. And they tend to be hypotensive, and of course, febrile, as we said, greater than 38 degrees Celsius. Laboratories are going to show things like high white blood cell count, but a low lymphocyte count, and things like low platelets. And if they've been bleeding, potentially some anemia. LFTs are going to show elevated AST and ALT aminotransferases. Bilirubin is going to be elevated. That's where your jaundice is coming from. And then coagulation studies like an INR are going to be elevated. These people are also going to have elevated inflammatory markers like CRP and ESR. If you want to actually test for the infection, it can be kind of challenging. But a few days after infection begins, you can actually isolate virus from someone's blood. You can do polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, and um, diagnose the viral infection that way. And then after more time, a few weeks or, or even longer, you can get serologies, which are um, IgM antibodies initially followed by IgG. Pathology is another way that yellow fever can be diagnosed, but this is usually post-mortem and done with things like liver biopsies for things that have been killed for people who have been killed by yellow fever. Unfortunately, there are no specific treatments for the yellow fever virus. People have tried ribavirin, interferon, plasma. Basically everything they tried for COVID-19 and none of these things actually work. And so the real treatment is supportive care. And this, of course, is why prevention is so critical for the yellow fever vaccine. In fact, we have a highly efficacious and, for the most part, safe vaccine that works really well. On top of that, things like vector control of mosquitoes and just protecting yourself from mosquitoes biting you can do a lot to prevent yellow fever virus. But first, story time. So yellow fever has had a rich history with humans, and there have been a number of epidemics in the past related to yellow fever, and there still are in modern times in tropical Africa and South America. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, the Americas were particularly plagued with yellow fever. Um, What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. 
post it online on social media let your friends know have them subscribe put the word out there that's all we really ask and at the very least give us a review and rate the podcast thanks so much let's get back to the show Basically, there were like 20-plus recorded epidemics and probably more of yellow fever, often killing almost entire towns in some instances or entire boats full of people. But the yellow fever epidemic of 1793 killed 9% of the residents in Philadelphia. This was formerly the United States Capitol, and many residents, including George Washington, actually fled the city as a result of this. It's kind of crazy to think about with yellow fever being really all in South America now with maybe a little bit going up into Central America. But back in the day, being the 18th and 19th century, you would get outbreaks of yellow fever in places like New Orleans, Memphis, and then even as far north as places like Philadelphia. And this just demonstrates how these arboviruses can really change uh, in geographic region, and not very much time at all. Alright, so you got yellow fever in equatorial Africa, in equatorial South America, but why not Asia? You know, you've got countries all over the, equa- the equator throughout Asia, and on top of that they have humans, monkeys, and the right species of mosquito, Aedes aegypti. And the answer is nobody really knows why yellow fever hasn't taken hold. And in fact, until 2016, there had never been a reported case of yellow fever in Asia. In 2016, basically, 11 people from China were in Africa and then imported the disease to China and were diagnosed with it there. But it's pretty crazy to think about how there's all the right conditions in Asia for yellow fever, but yet it's never made it over. Um, All the while, it was able to colonize North America, or sorry, South America, and and initially North America. And really, the reason for that is not known, but because of that, many Asian countries are very wary about people traveling from endemic yellow fever areas. And such countries in Asia may require proof of vaccination if, say, you're jumping or if, say, you're traveling to Uganda or something, and then you're planning on making a trip to Thailand or something after that. There are approximately 34 countries in Africa and 13 countries in South America that have endemic yellow fever. And 32 of these countries have vaccination programs. But even in these 32 countries, uh, mi- sorry, even in many of these 32 countries, less than 50% of people are vaccinated. So we've got a long way to go as far as vaccinating these people living in these areas that are at most risk. And that is why the World Health Organization launched the Yellow Fever Initiative, which is focusing on vaccinating uh, 12 high-risk countries with low resources in Africa. And they've actually vaccinated over 100 people. Sorry, 100 million people. So that's pretty cool, and that's a lot of people. And I want to spend the majority of, of the rest of this podcast talking about prevention of yellow fever. And the first way to prevent yellow fever is what we call vector control. 
and vector control basically means killing mosquitoes or killing their larvae. And the really this is done mostly on Aedes aegypti and not really the mosquitoes in the, the jungles in the sylvitic cycle because it's really not so easy to, to kill those mosquitoes and there's always the monkeys and so that's a much harder cycle cycle to break but the first way to reduce mosquitoes is of course to get rid of of where they breed and that's that's standing water and unfortunately a lot of the infrastructure in these countries tends to not be so good and the water the water systems tend to not be good so people are relying on things like buckets and they're carrying their their water kind of above ground and that's just a perfect place for pregnant mosquitoes to to lay their larvae and, and make more mosquitoes. On top of that there's lots of trash and bottles and tires. I don't know if you've ever been to um, you know some of these developing countries but there tends to be a lot of trash and those can be places where water can collect and that can also make breeding mosquitoes uh, more easy. So getting rid of the water where they breed is a great great kind of first step. The next thing that a lot of people do is they use larvicidal um, drugs to kill the larvae in in water. So like in areas where they're standing water and there you know there's not going to be you're not going to just drain it or something, you might treat it with an agent like pyreproxifen which is thought to be uh, safe for humans at, at low doses and it doesn't require very much to kill the larvae and so that's a, a good way to do it. Another way people have handled um, taking out larvae is by introducing fish or crustaceans like mesocyclops that will eat the larvae and those have actually been really sex successful in some mosquito abation uh, or um, abatement projects. The next way to get rid of mosquitoes is actually by killing adult mosquitoes. And lethal ovitraps have been a very successful way that this is done. You can think about these as basically a tube of water. And the, the female grabbing mosquito will, will look at this as an ideal place to lay their eggs. But oftentimes the, the, the trap includes either a pesticide or a larvicide that either kills the eggs or kills the adult mosquito and the eggs. And that's a very targeted way to kill mosquitoes and much better than than things like fogging, uh, which basically, you know, planes or, or, or vehicles would drive around and just blow out chemicals into the air. And believe it or not, I actually remember as a kid seeing this like truck drive down my street in the summertime and it was literally fogging for mosquitoes I think because people were concerned about West Nile virus and that's a that's a pretty bad thing that's a that's kind of a, a not a very um, targeted way to get rid of mosquitoes the next way to avoid yellow fever is to avoid mosquitoes if you can stay out of areas where mosquitoes are really prevalent like say the jungle then you're going to have a lot less risk for yellow fever. But of course you may have traveled to that country to see the jungle and that may not be a reasonable way to do it. Another thing you can do is potentially avoid times like dusk and dawn because a lot of mosquitoes, especially in jungle areas, tend to bite at those times. But that kind of falls through when we talk about Aedes aegyptus because it tends to bite during the day. So, so avoiding those times is not going to be particularly helpful. But if you are going to be out some things that you can do are wear long sleeve clothing, 
uh, ideally treated with something like permethrin if you're in a really high mosquito risk area. You can also use things like nets over your face and then of course bed nets around uh, your bed or, or sleeping in a tent or something like that is going to be absolutely paramount in an area like that. On top of that you can apply um, insect repellent to your skin. 30% DEET is a really, uh, a really proven thing that tends to work well as well as 20% Picardin and 30% PMD, which is also known as oil of lemon eucalyptus. All of those mosquito repellents um, can be very good ways to prevent mosquitoes from wanting to land on you and bite you. And I myself have always hated using things like DEET, but when, at the end of the day when you're getting swarmed by mosquitoes, it's probably the lesser of two evils. And when you're in an area that has yellow fever and other um, serious arboviruses, you may want to think about using that deed, uh, no matter how bad it smells or how bad worried you are about chemicals and stuff like that. Okay, that's a pretty good start on yellow fever. I'm going to call this part one. In part two, we're going to pick it back up. We're going to focus mainly on the vaccine, but we're going to pepper in some other good pearls for your knowledge in that noodle of yours. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye. Pew.